You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 54. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today in the show, we're talking with Matt Burgles, the author of the new children's book, Larry Saves the Prairie. This is a super informative picture book about the true story of conservation hero Larry Haverfield, a rancher from Kansas who took a stand against an outdated piece of legislation requiring private landowners to poison prairie dogs found on their own land. So in today's interview with Matt, we'll be discussing both the dramatic impact that Larry Haverfield has had on the conservation of the prairie ecosystem in Kansas, as well as the approach that Matt has decided to take towards telling Larry's story and sharing this important information about the prairie ecosystem. I absolutely love talking with folks who have taken a unique or unusual approach towards addressing a conservation issue. So it was truly a pleasure to have the chance to chat with Matt about the process of writing Larry Saves the Prairie. It is a wonderful book, and I'll say that it passed the most important test that I could possibly administer. It entertained and engaged my two-and-a-half-year-old son, Rowan. Let's jump into the interview. All right. I'm here with Matt Burgles, who is a teacher, an independent researcher, uh, an advocate for wildlife, and and most recently a a children's book author. Um, How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great. Thank you. Well, thanks a lot for agreeing to come on the show today. I'm I'm really excited about this interview. Um, And, you know, I want to start things off here by having you introduce our listeners to your new children's book, which is called Larry Saves the Prairie. Uh, Maybe you can just give us a brief synopsis of the book. Sure. Well, Larry Saves the Prairie is the true story of what I call a true wildlife hero and a lot of other of us interested in conservation, especially, of course, prairie conservation. Larry was a farmer in his 70s who had uh, grown up on the Kansas prairie and had lived there his entire life and ranched a 10,000-acre ranch, give or take a few acres, with his father starting back in the 1950s and then as his father passed away he took over the ranch and operated it with his wife and five children and he along the line started to look out at what had transpired on this land and the surrounding lands before he took it over and he just started to think to be a little generic about it that you know there's got to be a better way to work with the wildlife here and to work with nature he started to study the history of the prairie and about you know the millions of buffalo who used to roam and how the ecosystem worked and so on. And as time went on, as we get into the 60s and early 70s, he began to go off and look for alternative ways to ranch other than simply drilling a well and poisoning weeds and poisoning wildlife and feeding cattle in the old traditional way and really being at war with Mother Nature. And so he started to move his cattle around. He wanted to mimic the buffalo herds from hundreds of years before. He saw how the prairie dogs, being a keystone species, were an integral part of the prairie ecosystem. He loved to see hawks and eagles um, and the other raptors and wildlife on his land. And so 
he also figured out that, you know, I'm in this to make money and I'm spending a whole lot of time and money on poison and running around um, trying to poison prairie dogs and other wildlife. So fast forwarding um, to about 2000, early 2000s, we'll say, he began to be at odds with many of his neighbors and with Kansas law for that matter, because Kansas law says that any county commission throughout the entire state of Kansas can go out and tell you that you have to poison prairie dogs on your land, whether you want to or not, and you have to pay for it. And he refused to follow the law, and he explained why very cordially. And so he began to be at odds with the county commission. Uh, fast forwarding, he eventually got kill notices and court orders and so on, which the book brings out, of course. And through the good relationship that he had with Audubon of Kansas, probably the leading conservation organization in Kansas, he found an attorney in Wichita named Randy Rathbun, who kind of came to his assistance as far as legal advice, and they started to go through the court system. In that process, he worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to put black-footed ferrets on his land, which I'm sure all of your listeners, or at least most of them know, is an endangered species thought to be extinct until the early 1980s when a small colony was found up in Wyoming. And so he volunteered to put those critters on his land, and again, fast forwarding, in the end, after several court appearances and going through the entire process, the Kansas Supreme Court ruled that since there were endangered species on his land, he did not have to poison the wildlife, the prairie dogs that they are most dependent upon for their burrows and for their food and for just about everything else. So this book is geared for kindergartners through fourth grade. And it goes through that entire story, and it tries to, in very um, simple terms, explain what the ecosystem is, what keystone species are. And it tells the whole story of Larry and his family and this fight that I just described through the eyes of two prairie dogs, Annabelle and Angus. And uh, the illustrator, I think, is really the guy who brings life to the book and really makes it what I think is a, is a wonderful children's book, and that is Rob Peters, who is a Kansan himself and brought in to the story and did an excellent job of, of illustrating it. And so that's kind of it in a nutshell, and uh, it's very colorful. It has coloring pages in the back, and there's sections in the back for uh, people to find out what motivated me to do this, about where I grew up on the prairie, and how I got to uh, know Larry Haverfield and why I wrote about him and so on. It, it is a fantastic book, um, and I, I've been reading it to um, to my two-year-old, Rowan, um, for the past uh, few weeks. Um, and even though it is, you know, as you said, geared towards a little bit of an older audience, uh, my son's only two years old, it is compelling to him. You know, he'll sit through the entire book, and he's interested in it. And I'm sure that he's not absorbing all the, you know, sort of minute, minute details of, you know, what you're trying to get across there, and he'll pick up on that later. But it's compelling enough to, to him that, and, you know, he's engaged as you're reading it to him, um, which is really awesome. Um, really well done. Um, so I am curious to learn about h how you first heard about this issue and uh, how you first became aware of the efforts of Larry Haverfield. Sure. I, as I prepared to end my career as a high school teacher and football coach, I wanted to, you know, I was... I was planning to retire at age 50, which is uh, 
pretty young for most people to retire. And I wanted to plan for a second career. I had always had in my mind a passion for wildlife and wildlife conservation. And as I say in the back of the book, I grew up on the prairie in the last subdivision of a town in southern Colorado. And, you know, I, I used to roam out there and look at the beautiful mountains and the prairies and the wildlife. And just as a five or six year old kid thinking, boy, this is paradise and it's going to be like this forever. Well, of course, soon there were houses behind me and then a super highway and then uh, some shopping malls and so on. And that whole phenomenon that's played out that we generally refer to as sprawl uh, since World War II in this country. And I, I, I always had this idea in the back of my mind that something isn't right here. Something is out of out of kilter. And I wanted to spend the rest of my life you know, doing something about it and being an advocate for wildlife. Well, uh, as time went on, again, I pursued this career. And then when I was ready to retire, I went back to school and studied public affairs because in studying the literature, most people have discovered that, you know, with all of the wonderful work wildlife biologists do, um, it, conservation really comes down to a social science issue and how do we try to work with people to get a conservation ethic to conserve wildlife, the human dimensions angle as it's now called commonly. And so I went back and I, I went to graduate school and got my PhD in public affairs with the idea that I was going to go out and work in this field. Well, lo and behold, it's uh, sort of difficult at the age of 50 after 30 years in one profession to break into another, I figured out real quick. And so I became sort of an independent researcher, and I did some work with the Denver Zoo Department of Conservation, a very good conservation organization. And at one of their seminars that I participated in, I heard about Larry Haverfield and private landowners who uh, are what we in the conservation field call enlightened ranchers and farmers, I guess. And I heard that, you know, he was in this court process at the time and what he was doing. And I was, uh, I was very interested in it. So I remember coming home from that and doing a search of his name and seeing his name all over the New York Times, the Washington Post, other prestigious publications. And I said, wow, this is really awesome what this guy is doing. So I, I found him through a Google search online. I got his telephone number, called him up, asked him if I could come out and visit with him. He said, sure, come on out. So I packed my two young kids into uh, the car, and we headed to Kansas. And uh, we spent a day with him in his truck uh, rolling around, and he showed me how we moved his cattle around from paddock to paddock, which is almost unheard of for most ranchers in Kansas and the entire Great Plains for that matter. And he was just a, a Norman Rockwell, salt of the earth kind of character, you know, the, the quintessential uh, American rancher. He he had these great blue overalls on, and he had an old uh, stained hat, and he had a beard, and he was just as down to earth and salt of the earth as you could find, and we just had a wonderful time with him. Unfortunately, uh, a few months after that, I, actually, I guess it was uh, closer to two years after that, I found out that he was diagnosed with cancer. And he wasn't doing well, and I didn't get out to see him again before he passed away. But the day that I found out he passed away, I said, I'm going to do something in tribute to him and contribute to the cause of conservation. So I immediately went forward with this book with the approval and assistance of his family. He were with me through the entire process. So that's kind of how uh, Larry Haverfield came up. Maybe I, I talked too long about that, but uh, it, it was an interesting story, and I just – Figured that, as you mentioned in the intro, since I work with young kids in a school right now, I know that 
most of them are champions for animals and wildlife in particular. And as I ran this idea by them, and you know, read some of the drafts to them and so on, I knew that we were on to something and, and it turned out to be a, a pretty good product. I love hearing the details about the, you know, your inspiration to do just do something to sort of share Larry's story and share these ideas that, that Larry had that you saw as really important uh, for conservation of prairie ecosystems. And yeah, like you said, you know, because of your background, sort of the format of that being a children's book, uh, it makes sense, right? But I guess, you know, what I'm wondering is is that this book, you know, which is geared towards you know, pretty young kids, kindergarten through fourth grade, you know, brings up some relatively complex issues. Um, you know, you have, uh, you know, explanations of the Endangered Species Act and the inner workings of the prairie ecosystem and how all these animals are connected. Um, the concept of a keystone species. I, I mean, were you worried that, that there was too much in here, that this was too complex for your audience? Absolutely. And it was to begin with. Um, the editor at Mary Dissonance Press really had to back me up. And I, I think most authors will tell you, at least when they start out, that, you know, I, I've written this book, and of course it's the greatest book that's ever been written, and it's going to win a Nobel Prize, and it's perfect as is, and so on and so forth. But she very gently, um, you know, and with my humility in mind, said, we need to make this simpler, and we need to take out what she referred to, I believe, as the in-your-face kind of idea because, you know, certainly there is an ulterior motive here besides getting kids interested in conservation and hopefully helping their reading and so on. The ulterior motive is to, as you and I discussed before we went on here, is to hopefully start a conversation in Kansas and across the Great Plains and the country and maybe even the world eventually that there is a better way and a more cost-efficient way to stay in business in the agricultural uh, spear without having to be at odds and in battle with mother nature all of the time. And so many people have asked me, and I think this is part of what your question is, you know, why didn't you do a, an adult book? Why didn't you do a scholarly book? And I, I certainly thought about that, but, you know, going through graduate school and seeing so many good people do such good research that quite frankly, as we all know, ends up on a shelf somewhere with very little attention paid to it until somebody maybe uses it in their research project. So there's certainly some merit to that, but I thought that something more entertaining and so more market worthy might not only get to the kids, but through the kids to their parents and to the larger community. So it was a little bit more complicated in the beginning, but uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, you know, we did break down some of those ideas and hopefully got them across still, but in kid language and in an entertaining fashion. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm particularly interested in these ideas about grazing practices that you, you address in the book. I see this as sort of a central idea um, that I think very few people are aware of, um, whereas, you know, most of our listeners are probably, you know, aware of, you know, a lot of the details of the Endangered Species Act and this concept of a keystone species and, you know, all these ideas about how an ecosystem works and how the animals interact. But I'm guessing that, you know, for a lot of our listeners, these ideas about, you know, new, uh, more efficient grazing practices um, are probably new to a lot of folks who are listening. Um, I mean, is, it, is, is this something that you have done specific research uh, in as a part of your Ph.D.? No, not at all. And, and quite frankly, to be honest, I'm very um, 
I don't know a whole lot about the science and the details behind it. Uh, I'm certainly not an agronomist and I'm not a biologist. However, the, the basics of it, I think most of us can understand, again, as I think I mentioned earlier, is to mimic what the buffalo did uh, back before white settlers came and Native Americans lived in harmony with them. And that is that they roamed the plains. Of course, we're talking about herds of millions. And as they ate and deposited manure, they, as they migrated, their hooves churned it all in to the sod and they moved on and then that sod rested and then the native grasses came up and the wildlife, such as the prairie dogs, they did what they do. They aerated it by their burrowing system and they fertilized it and they you know, went about the whole work of an entire ecosystem and everything was in balance. Well, as white Europeans moved west to farm and to ranch and to mine, which were the three biggest economic activities that they did in the early 19th century and throughout the 19th century and even into the early 20th century, of course, they began to fence things off. We had the Kansas-Nebraska Act that sliced up everything in nice, neat um, squares and or sections, and people began to put up fences and, you know, Long story short, the grass or the prairie, the entire Great Plains really became overgrazed. And, of course, a lot of that blame was put upon prairie dogs where really it was just poor grazing practice. And so I have, you know, page after page of studies that have been done that prairie dogs in the natural ecosystem actually were beneficial to grass and to the pasture. And, again, the proof is, you know, the buffalo. But as we went on through time and – People began to try to eradicate prairie dogs and other wildlife. You know, attitudes changed and myths, of course, whether they be myths about race or ethnicity or education or, in this case, pests or varmints, as they were called, those myths get perpetuated from generation to generation. And we bring out some of those in the book, as you recall. One of them is, you know, these prairie dogs in their holes are, are livestock, horses and cows. They step in their and they break their legs. Well, working with the Denver Zoo, we, we heard this story a lot, but we've yet to find anybody who can show us proof that a prairie dog hole actually broke, uh, you know, a, an animal's leg. And as the book says, you know, they're very sure-footed animals. If you've ever ridden a horse, you know, I've ridden horses over steep rock ledges and down steep hills and over logs and so on, and those eyes of theirs are everywhere on the ground, and I, I've never seen one misstep yet, unlike human beings. So that's just one myth. There's the other myth about, you know, we're going to get bit by fleas and we're going to get the Black Plague, and the list goes on and on. And so I attempt to dispel some of those things. But back to your, you know, the, the question about the grazing, Larry just simply tried to mimic the buffalo. And so he would take, let's say, 100 herd of cattle, and he, he fenced off, I believe the number was 50 paddocks on his ranch, and he would put – you know, so many cattle in this one and so many cattle in this one. And there's some great uh, videos of him online, if you do a Google search, of him riding around a motorcycle. You know, he wasn't a, a horseman necessarily, but he rode a Yamaha motorcycle, and he would open the paddocks, and he would herd these uh, cattle to the next paddock after two or three days. And then he had a system down after doing this for years where the grass got to rest and the prairie dogs did what they do. And the grass was in great shape. And you can see before or after pictures of the 
the ranch before he started doing this and from the previous owners and uh, barren in many places and drought had struck and so on. And then after he did this uh, method for a few years and the natural grasses were coming back and all the while saving money and time, not having to, you know, poison prairie dogs. And he continued his business and thrived and was profitable. So uh, I, I can't tell you about the biology of it, but that's basically you know how it works. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you've touched on a really key point here, which is this idea that um, that that there is a way that there, there is a middle ground on this issue, right? And you know, a lot of the sort of coverage of uh, you know sort of environmental and conservation issues, you know, associated with prairie ecosystems, but you know, with with all you know, conservation of all ecosystems and wildlife across the board, um, is you often see this polarization of these conservation issues, um, and you see you know sort of the you know what you see represented in you know in a lot of the mainstream media is the two extremes on either side. You know, the environmentalists who think you know oh there shouldn't be any grazing at all on public land. You know, I, I've a lot of you know um, a lot of colleagues who I work with who who you know have this very strong opinion, you know, oh, there shouldn't be any grazing allowed at all on public lands, you know, this land is not meant to have cattle on it. And then on the other side, you have these ranchers, you know, who are saying, you know, the only way that we, you know, can maintain our livelihood is if we, you know, poison all the prairie dogs and and do it in this way that, you know, like you said, is really just uh, perpetrating this this misconception uh, about, you know, how that ecosystem works, but also about what the most efficient way to uh, to, to graze their cattle on that land is. Um, and it's, it's you know, I think really important to highlight the work of an individual like Larry Haverfield, who is is living and breathing that middle ground, and he's doing both at the same time. Um, sure. And showing that, you know, grazing cattle on the land actually can have a positive impact on the land, right? That's right. For those of us old old enough to know, to remember, you know, I remember back in the early 90s, there was a phrase from uh, some environmentalists and it said cattle free in 93 or by 93. And, you know, in a perfect world, sure, that would be wonderful. Um, but I'm very much a pragmatist. I'm also a professional mediator. So I sit down two or three times a week with disputing parties and try to bring them together to some common ground, I think, as you called it. So it's part of my nature to look at this and say, you know, these these cattlemen and women and oil extractors and other energy extractors and on and on, they're not going to go away in my lifetime or anytime soon. In fact, now with wind and solar, it's even becoming more and more important, I think, to bring folks together. And some of the conservation work I've done is to sit down with oil producers and to sit down with cattle ranchers and farmers and, you know, talk about how can we move together forward? And, you know, they're, they're a little leery because they've spent so many years uh, fighting, I guess is a word to use, with what they call radical environmentalists. And I say, you know, I understand what's going on here. And, and as you and I discussed before the show a little bit, most of them understand the land probably better than a lot of us who call ourselves conservationists because they've lived there for so long. Um, and if we can just get them to listen for a while and look and say, you know, maybe there's a better way. I think we'll make a lot more ground than going out there and alienating them and being, you know, on the on the opposite side of the fence. So I think you're you're hitting the nail on the head exactly with what you're saying. We we obviously share this opinion that, you know, it is important to sort of bring folks together and to depolarize these issues if you really want to accomplish something. But I do want to sort of touch on another 
another component of, you know, this specifically, you know, what you talk about in the book, you know, Larry made this decision to introduce uh, the black-footed ferret um, onto his land, which is considered an endangered species. And then once the black-footed ferret was present on the landscape, the, the decision was made that he did not have to poison the prairie dogs, basically because that would be indirectly poisoning an endangered species. Right. And I guess it just it seems to me like that's such a bizarre and roundabout way to <laughs> to deal with this issue, you know, like the 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 base level issue that he was dealing with, you know, the 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 fact that the the state was trying to mandate that he had to poison wildlife on his own land and that he had to do it, you know, uh, that he had to pay for it himself. It just seems totally crazy. And the fact that he had to go this totally roundabout way to overcome that is just really bizarre to me. Right. Well, it's, first of all, a very anachronistic law. It uh, comes from 1901. And, you know, if you go back to that year and previous years, and of course, years after, there were bounties on certain wildlife, most of uh, the coyotes and wolves and those sorts of animals. And so that's where we start. But Kansas is a very conservative um, you could say, in many cases, anti-government sort of state. And certainly when you come into Kansas and start talking about you know, saving prairie dogs, <clears throat> as they say out in the country, you ain't going to be, be the prom king. And so I think you, you're exactly right. The immediate cause of him winning this would be the introduction of the black-footed ferret and them being an endangered species. But the underlying issue of his victory was – simply that he believed in what he was doing, and he had the grit and the self-determination to stick with it. I think a lot of uh, lesser people would have been daunted and intimidated into backing down. There are stories that he told me and that you can read online and uh, from certain sources where he would show up to some of these county meetings and be outnumbered, you know, literally 200 or more to one. And he says in a video that uh, Defenders of Wildlife has up that, you know, I uh, stood up and said one time, and I probably overdid it, that I actually like prairie dogs. And he said it was this stunned silence for, you know, literally 10 or 15 seconds. And people couldn't actually believe they were hearing that from one of their own, you know, one of their peers. And so he said, basically, I I believe in in killing prairie dogs and controlling prairie dogs the old-fashioned way, and that is to let the predators do it. And so... I'm tired of you know using poison, and I'm I'm not going to give into this law because it's just not right. And his neighbors, you know, several of them got very nasty with him, and the county itself uh, sent him nasty letters and actually sent people under cover of darkness and so on. And when he was out of town, to actually do some of this extermination. And so it's not a, a, a pretty story in many cases. I didn't bring the darker part of this, of course, into a children's book. But he's hung in there, you know, throughout the whole thing, and he never wavered, and he stood up for what he believed in, and in the end, was victorious. Now, I have asked his his children, and they're five adult children now, you know, how are things going with the neighbors now? And I think one of the terms one of them used was, well, it's sort of an uneasy truce. You know, they, they're a little bit uh, nervous about us, but they've... They've come forward a little bit and say, you know, they've seen that we're still in business and we're still making money. And, you know, the the earth didn't didn't fall apart because of what we did and because of the judge's ruling. 
So I think there's hope to, to turn the corner with others. And I might say in my research, uh, and they don't want me to use their names, but some ranchers in eastern Colorado, which of course is the same um, geography as uh, western Kansas, they kind of came from the same place, except e even more conservative and more anti-government. But when they found out that there were these species living on their land that they weren't even aware of until some um, government biologist came and showed it to them and said, you know, we have some financial incentives for you to conserve. Um, they have come a million miles from this idea that we need to kill everything to maybe there's a better way. And in fact, one that I talk about a lot, I use the analogy of a reformed alcoholic where he came from one total way of life to now going out and speaking about the evils of poison and how you need to live with your wildlife and so on. And so I think that there's hope uh, for private landowners and for those of us who are concerned about the species that live there, I think there's hope for a, for a change of attitude and a change of culture. And um, since I've always been attracted to the prairie ecosystem and the prairie demography, you know, that's kind of where I want to focus the rest of my life and do what I can do about this. Well, it's certainly good to hear that there are other folks that are sort of taking up this cause. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's really interesting the way you present that. You know, you present, you know, uh, sort of the politics of uh, the state of Kansas as being, you know, this sort of this sort of anti-government uh, sort of attitude. Um, and yet at the same time, all of these folks who were fighting against Larry's efforts to... Um, basically just to not ha not be forced to poison the wildlife on his land. Right. Um, like they're fighting for what in my mind seems like a really blatant example of government overreach. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and of course I, I, I'm trying to stay out of, of politics, but there certainly are some incongruencies without philosophy. You know, most of them are very much um, maybe anti-government isn't necessarily the term, but pro-property rights kinds of folks. Um, and that applies to what I want to do with my land, you know, whether it's cattle or mining or, you know, just leave me alone. It's my land and let me do with it what I need to. Except when one of us wants to preserve the prairie dogs on our land and then all of a sudden, you know, that uh, philosophy doesn't hold. Now we want the government to force you to kill them. And so there's certainly some inconsistencies there and, uh, that's exactly what we see happening there. But again, I'm, I'm an optimist and I'm hoping to soften that attitude somewhat. And money talks, of course, to most all of us and certainly to folks who are in business for themselves. And the guys I use, you know, in the eastern plains of Colorado and in the western part of Colorado too, not with prairie dogs, but with um, the Gunnison sage grouse and other species, you know, they were offered some incentives from government programs, and there isn't enough resources out there to go around to offer the incentives to everyone who we would like to. But I think without government incentives, the other economic incentive is, hey, you know, why spend all this money? As, as Larry was very adamant pointing out, you know, it, it takes a lot of money and a lot of time and other resources to carry out these eradication programs. How about doing it naturally, saving that money and saving that time and doing right by Mother Nature all at the same time? And so I think that, you know, we, we need to keep that economic angle in mind as we talk to private landowners about conservation. Because in the end, um, if, if they can't make a living, then you know we can't go out and say, hey, let's save 
the prairie dogs in the in the ecosystem just for the sake of saving it. That argument just doesn't fly with them. So there has to be a reason, and, and especially economically, for them to engage in conservation. So you you mentioned uh, you mentioned briefly uh, Larry's. Uh children who, who are now adults. Um, and it, it, it sa- sounds like, you know, based on the way you were talking about it, that um, his children are continuing to manage the ranch in a sort of similar way to uh, what Larry was doing. Yes. And I don't know the particulars of that. I haven't met all of his kids. There are, I believe the two sons still live nearby. One of them is on the ranch. And they all, as I understand it, have part ownership in the ranch. And I'm sure the people who actually work it, of course, take a bigger piece of the pie. Um, the other kids are out as attorneys and teachers and business people. But, yes, they do continue to work the ranch. And, as uh, again, to my knowledge, they continue to use Larry's methods of rotational grazing and not poisoning wildlife and to, in fact, speak out for wildlife. So, yes, that's that's correct. Is there a larger movement towards, you know, shifting ranching practices towards this more sort of environmentally sustainable approach? Do you see this happening in the near future? Um, I wish I could say yes. Unfortunately, I have not seen evidence of that. No, I think with that said, however, I think if you go back 25 or 50 years and compare it to now, I think some progress has been made. And part of that, again, is economics. It's market-driven. More and more publicity about how cattle is raised and how it's slaughtered and how it's kept, especially veal. And the point is that you know the future of cattle may not be all of that bright. And so I think the writing is on the wall, and I think ranchers have responded in many cases more humanely raising their cattle and trying to do it more, you know, that buzzword that we all are aware of now, more sustainably and more green, if you will. So I think that we've come a ways, and again, I think this is going to have to be market-driven, but I don't see a movement to rush to do what Larry did. But again, you know, that's part of my passion and my mission in, in doing these books and my other activities is to get that conversation going and hopefully we will start a movement but it's like most it's it's a gradual thing and it's going to take time so i guess in short we're better off than we have been and there's inklings of some movement but it, it is not yet to the stage that i hope to see it before you know i i, I leave this earth choosing to address this through a children's book um is I, I think it's a very refreshing approach, um, and it's good to see someone, you know, addressing a uh, conservation issue in this way and, you know, targeting kids because, you know, they are the next generation. And I think it's it's really important to, to share this message with um, with with that group. And I mean, that is that's how we're going to create, you know, that movement moving forward. Right. Right. That's the goal. Yeah. Well, th- thanks a lot, Matt, for coming on the show. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I've learned a lot about prairie ecosystems and grazing, and um, hopefully our listeners have as well. Um, So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Great. Thanks. All right. That was our conversation with children's book author Matt Burgles. What a fascinating story about a rancher who stood up to all of his peers to do what was right. I can't help but think about last week's podcast interview with Bob Salinger from Portland Audubon about the armed occupation of Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. 
The militant ranchers that are occupying this refuge are certainly polar opposites of Larry Haverfield in many ways. However, there is one key similarity. They are both fighting against what they see as extreme government overreach. And I can't help but point out that these militant ranchers actually have something very real to learn from what Larry Haverfield accomplished. When Larry encountered a government regulation that he strongly felt was infringing upon his rights as a private landowner, he worked within his community and within the framework of our judicial system to effect real change. I think that all of us can look at what Larry Haverfield was able to accomplish and learn something really important. And this is why his story makes such a powerful children's book. As Angus and Annabelle, the prairie dog characters in Matt's book say, many of our greatest heroes are everyday people. If you want to learn more about Matt's book, Larry Saves the Prairie, and find out how to pick up a copy of your own, head on over to the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC54. This episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. Humidors.